For most of this century, there has been a single story about global food security, that food insecurity existed outside U.S. borders, in low- and middle-income countries. And in these countries, food producers themselves were the most food insecure of anyone. This single story lent itself to a simple policy solution, increasing agricultural production in developing countries. It is still incredibly important to do this, but not only this. As demographics change, as geopolitics shift, as the world wrestles with the COVID pandemic, and as climate change causes temperature and weather extremes worldwide, today's food insecurity requires new solutions. Have policymakers kept up, or are they relying on yesterday's answers? Welcome to the Reset the Table podcast, where we'll make room at the table for fresh ideas for solving food insecurity around the world and right here at home. My guest today is Carlo Caffiero, Senior Statistician and Economist with the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN. Dr. Caffiero is one of the authors of the State of Food Security and Nutrition in the World Report, often called the SOFIE Report, which is published annually by five UN agencies, the FAO, EFAD, UNICEF, WFP, and the WHO. He's an expert in the two main means of measuring food insecurity at a global scale, the prevalence of undernourishment statistic and the food insecurity experience scale. And all of this is a long way to say that in terms of measuring food security globally, Dr. Cafiero has few peers. Joining me for today's conversation is Andy Zeppa, a partner in the London office of Gallup and a senior associate non-resident of the CSIS Global Food Security Program. Carlo, Andy, welcome to Reset the Table. Thank you, Caitlin. Real pleasure to be here with you. Thank you, Caitlin. Always a pleasure. So I'm going to start out with a question for for you, Carlo. Food security is a complex, multifaceted phenomenon. Every single person around the world is food secure or food insecure or somewhere between these two extremes. A person's food security status is dynamic. It can change across time, often quickly, depending on a multitude of factors. So how is it then that once a year, the UN or several UN agencies come up with a handful of numbers to explain the food security for every person around the world? That's a very good question. And uh, the, the easy answer to that is because it's part of our mandate. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization exists and was created with a specific objective to inform the world on the state of food and agriculture. So. It's inscribed in the FAO Constitution. It's the first comma of the first article of the Constitution that mandates the organization to do it. And that's why we feel obliged to continue to do it, to try to do it as well as possible, even though, as you just mentioned, it's a very difficult task. And even defining what food insecurity is, is something that, keeps evolving and taking on different nuances depending even of the historic situation. And so as a statistician, as somebody that has the responsibility to provide a consistent series of numbers, I used to describe it as a nightmare because we don't have an operational definition that is very precise, very narrow, in which you can attach numbers to it. So we do what we can, and over time there has been an evolution of the methods, 
of the data used, and even on the way we communicate about it. Yeah, I just want to summarize some of the main findings of this year's SOFI report. So according to the report that was released in July 2021, according to the prevalence of undernourishment statistic, between 720 million and 811 million people in the world faced hunger in 2020. And by using the food insecurity experience scale, one in three people in the world did not have access to adequate food in 2020. Can you start us off with one of the earliest measurements with the prevalence of undernourishment with POU and then walk us through how measurements have evolved? Prevalence of undernourishment is actually one of the oldest indicators of food security, even though the proper operational definition would be more an assessment of the extent in which people worldwide have access to food in order to cover the energy requirement. So it's a rather narrow concept of food intended as providing the dietary energy. And so if people do not consume enough food, they might become weak and they might not be able to fully perform their physical activity levels. And this is what undernourishment technically means. Just to note that a better word to describe the indicator in English would be prevalence of underfeeding, not nourishment, but the fact that in English we don't have effective words to distinguish between feeding and nourishing. Whereas in some Latin language this exists. So in Italian, for example, we say alimentazione as different from nutrizione. The same in French and in Spanish. But underfeeding in English simply didn't sound right. In those languages, in Italian and French, do you, do you make that differentiation then? Yes. In fact, the prevalence of undernourishment is in French would be la pourcentage de sous-alimentation rather than the nutrition and the same in Spanish or Italian. Okay, thank you. And I, I do understand that the way that the POU has been measured has changed over time. Is that correct? More than the way in which it is measured is the data that is available for informing the indicator that has been evolving over time. At the beginning, the availability of representative surveys of the food consumption in the population was were very rare. The first time that FAO produced the prevalence of undernourishment was in 1974. At that time, it was just a handful of countries that would provide data on the distribution of food consumption within the population. And for that reason, the estimate was essentially mostly based on food supplies. And so there was an assumption made on the level of inequality of the distribution. So that within a certain country, even though you have enough calories to potentially feed everyone adequately, there is some inequality. Starting in the 1980s, the availability of household survey was growing quite fast. And so nowadays we do have more information on the actual extent of inequality in access to food. 
So the method remains the same, is the data that we can have, that it's deeper and broader. I'd like to move to the food insecurity experience scale. The reason why we have explored, tested, and developed the food insecurity experience scale was in response to some evident drawbacks of the typical indicator of the prevalence of undernourishment, particularly in terms of timeliness and ability to have continuous annual assessment. There is always some lag between one assessment and the next because these are expensive endeavors. So we needed something faster, being able to capture the dynamics because we wanted to follow the evolution over time in a timely manner. And so the first time that um, was Andrew coming to FAO making a presentation of the Gallup World Poll, that we consider the possibility of borrowing the experience that existed already in the US with the household food security supplementary module that is applied every year in the general population survey. And we thought, okay, what if now we bring that approach to measure people's ability to access food, not through the observation of food consumption, but rather through self-reported occurrence of typical condition and experience. This had been tested in the US, used since 1995, but there we were in 2010-2011 that only few countries had done it. And so this is what we did. We wanted something that could be done relatively quickly, proven to be a robust way of measuring people's ability to access food. And we started working on first testing, whether the survey vehicle was appropriate, and then analyzing the result. And in 2014, for the first time, we were able to collect data in more than 140 countries. And since then, we have been able to do it every year. So just to summarize, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, but the way that I think about the prevalence of undernourishment and the food insecurity experience scale and how they complement each other is that prevalence of undernourishment looks at the amount of food, the amount of calories and energy available in a country divided by its population to tell you whether or not the amount of food is is sufficient or insufficient to meet the energy needs of the population. And that the food insecurity experience scale actually surveys people in countries about their experience of food security and whether or not they have access to sufficient food. So one looks at country level conditions, the prevalence of undernourishment, and the food insecurity experience scale looks at the experience of people in a country. Well, Kathleen, I must correct you in that the prevalence of undernourishment is not simply based on the average food availability. Because even though with difficulty, even though perhaps not updated each and every year from each and every country, one key element to come up with an estimate of the prevalence of undernourishment is also a measure of inequality. Unfortunately, this is a misconception that is quite diffuse, saying that prevalence of undernourishment only looks at food availability. No, it is a combination of both. However, 
it is true that the addition of the food insecurity experience scale and the possibility of computing a different, an additional set of indicators add information. And this is with reference to two aspects. One is the timeliness, because a fierce survey can be conducted much more frequently and at a much lower cost than a food consumption survey. But the second is that the food insecurity experience scale allow measuring food insecurity or ability to access food on an entire range of severity so that we can create indicators that are not only of the severe food insecurity. When people are not able to get enough food for their caloric need. So these are all nuances that make the FIES useful to inform a broader spectrum of the food insecurity situation. Thank you. Over to you, Andy, for some follow-up questions. Carlos, so we've heard a great deal about the importance of primary data in underpinning these robust estimates. Obviously, this year's SOFIE report reflects data that was collected during the pandemic. How has that impacted the certainty within which those estimates have been put forward this year? Um, and what do you think of the long-term ramifications of that going forward? Oh, thank you, Wendy. You're absolutely right. And I think Caitlin already mentioned that for the first time this year, the SOFIE report presents the number of undernourished people as a range, and it's a quite wide range, because of the uncertainty associated with our ability to make an assessment for a year like 2020, for which the information has been very incomplete and even less reliable than usual. So, for the very first time this year, Sophie doesn't give a single number, but is honest in admitting that our assessment is characterized by a certain degree of uncertainty that is particularly high, has been particularly high in 2020. There are two reasons for the uncertainty. One is that even in normal times, what we would do to make an assessment for the current year is what technicians call a now cast. So it's actually a projection based on relatively recent trends of the current situation. So the prevalence of undernourishment is always been a now cast for the last year because all the information that is used is never really referring to 2020. But in normal times, as I said, we were fairly confident that the recent trends could be extended for one or two years without being totally off the chart. But here comes 2020 and the COVID pandemic and the related actions. And it's clearly that this was a, an innovation, this was a, an extraordinary period. And so 
our confidence in the recent trend and projecting the recent trend broke down. And so we needed to work more creatively on models to factor in our projection, in our now casting method, the implication of COVID. And that was not easy. The second consequence, and this is particularly for the food insecurity experience scale, is that normally and typically would have, we would have preferred data collected face-to-face in which people are interviewed in person. But in 2020, this proved to be impossible and therefore there was a need to explore the possibility of collecting data in uh, different ways. So we did what we thought could be done given the available data. We are confident that the fears-based assessment remains fairly robust, but we need to admit that overall there is some additional uncertainty. So moving forward, what does this new um, data from this year, with this fairly broad margin of error attached to it, mean for future trends? Is that something we're going to see in future iterations of Sophie, or is there going to be a reversion back to a single figure? That's a very important question, but very difficult to answer, because yes, we will continue the assessment and probably part of the innovations brought about in data collection using telephone will persist in the future because let's be honest in some cases this is also a more flexible way to have more frequent data collection so there are opportunities to be learned out of this however to what extent the pandemic will have some persisting consequences in the way in which people access to food it's too early to say So we will monitor, we will focus our attention on comparing the the trends that we will see in the future with the past and try to understand what has happened, hoping that we don't get fooled by features that are only because of data changes and try to detect the real underlying determinants of food insecurity. But it's a challenge. Fascinating. So we originally heard about the evolution of some of these measurement tools. So from originally going purely from the presence and the nourishment to that being complemented with the uh, FIS food insecurity experience scale indicator. What does the future hold for measurements of food security? The one area in which we might expect some innovation is in getting more nuance on dietary quality. Because the food insecurity experience scale is able to measure the the strength of the constraints that prevents people from accessing food, but it doesn't really give any information on, in the end, what is the actual food that people get access to. And in principle, you would need individual dietary intake data because the diet is something individual even in the same household different people may eat differently because of a number of reasons 
And the nutritional status depends on what you eat, not what your husband or your children eat. So understanding why is some form of malnutrition more present in some uh, population group than other is currently very problematic because of lack of individualized food consumption data. So I think this is one area in which we would expect uh, investment and innovation to be made because people recognize the importance of having nutritional uh, policy guided also by data and evidence. Well, one, one quick question about interpretations of these numbers, and then I want to turn to headlines from this report. You had mentioned that measuring food security at a global scale, uh, you sometimes describe as a, as a nightmare. Do you ever think that interpretations of the numbers that you release annually, that these interpretations are also a nightmare? Do you find that the, the public interpret these numbers correctly or not? Uh, you're, you're absolutely right, yes. And I think that uh, another area where we need to invest is in communicating the data and the statistics in a way that don't get misinterpreted. And uh, still today, I am not uh, ashamed to say, even among colleagues within FAO, I find people having a partial understanding of the difference between the concept of undernourishment and the concept of food insecurity and the concept of malnutrition. And so there is a very, very broad range of interpretation of these numbers. You're absolutely right. Okay. So I'll give you an example of one thing that I read in the media uh, after this report is released every year. So for example, this year, um, media reports might say that In 2020, up to 811 million people in the world went to bed hungry every night. Do you think that's a correct interpretation of that number? No, I think that uh, it's a very common expression used, but to go to bed hungry every night, it's true that the prevalence of undernourishment tries to give a sense of how many people have severe problems of food deprivation. But if you match those statistics with numbers of death by starvation, you see the difference. Okay, so it might be difficult for you, but if you could take off your expert hat and you know put on your hat as, a, as someone in the, um, in the media, for example, what do you think is a, um, is a correct and simple way to interpret these numbers you know, for, for a broad audience? Well, it's the number of people that have very serious problems in their regular access to food, which means that they have facing difficulties that can be in terms of not being able to afford the food they need, of finding themselves in a situation in which conflict or displacement or being in... um, farmers who are exposed to the vagaries of uh, the weather are not able occasionally to have the food they would need. So it's people that if the situation would persist, they would uh, face serious clinical condition of what technical could be 
starvation or hunger from a, a clinical point of view. And uh, it is what it is. It's an assessment. We know that there is some uncertainty in the ability to really record these numbers. It's intended to give an indication of the medium-long-term trend as a way to monitor the achievement of the Millennium Development Goals or the Sustainable Development Goals, it's okay. A completely different picture is, do you want to use this data, this information to actually determine the best policy that in a specific country, in a given moment, is necessary? And then the answer is, yes, this is insufficient. The prevalence of undernourishment cannot be intended to be as a guide for specific policies. It lacks the, the depth, the timeliness and the nuances that is necessary for those um, other use of data. So uh, clearly you've been very influential in the development of the measurement of food insecurity at a global scale um, for, it sounds like, decades. If you could wave a magic wand and come up with a new system of measurement of food insecurity globally, what would that be? What would you be able to see? I would resist from even presenting the impression that you can easily solve the problem of food security assessment because the problem is not simple. So I would resist from waving uh, magic wands because policymakers in particular data users needs to be aware of the difficulties in getting evidence in a timely manner so if i had any magic power i would maybe hope that the education system in the world would make a better um, effort in teaching statistics and dealing with uncertainty. And if you allow me, the COVID pandemic has made it very, very clear how suddenly people everyone, everywhere in the world needed to rely on the advice of scientists with huge difficulties in understanding things like the effectiveness of a vaccine, what does it mean? 90% effective versus 95% is this meaningful or not. And so this is one of the reasons why usually all statistics can be misinterpreted because there is not sufficient literacy for that. Colleague, um, it's really interesting this discussion about the power of numbers. So there's obviously one number which holds a huge amount of weight, especially within the SDG framing. And that's zero. So zero hunger, SDG2. Given the fact that year on year since 2014, we've seen the world essentially step away from achieving that zero hunger figure, every single year stepping a little bit further away. Was it too ambitious for us to actually have that zero hunger as the sustainable development goal? Should we just have said, okay, to have no increase in hunger at all, is probably more achievable. No, I think to have zero hunger as an ambition is useful, is important, and we should have it in very strongly in our mind. But we should recognize that it's just an ambitional statement. It's like 
going to bed hungry every night is a metaphor. And the metaphor is that the world should do everything they can to prevent anybody from ever going hungry, knowing that that is an impossibility. Zero is a number that doesn't exist in the mind of a statistician. Is a, the only zero is the probability zero event that you can actually measure something like zero percent. So I, I wanted to make it clear. There is a difference between the ambition, the communication and the sense of a, a goal like the SDGs or the previously the MDGs, and then the need to be monitoring what's going on, providing signals that things are not going in the proper direction, that we will never be able to, no matter how sophisticated is the, the method, to measure zero hunger. It's incredibly interesting around zero hunger being an ambition rather than a realizable goal. So given the distance we are away from zero hunger, looking towards the future, is there hope? Um, I recognize that a lot of the conversations throughout the pandemic have been around building back better or building more resilient systems. Is that enough? What are those successes that we are celebrating at this point in time, which are transformational, which will enable us to hit that zero hunger figure or get as close to it as we can? First of all, is it possible to reach the situation in which we can be happy with the world situation in terms of food security? The answer is there are a few countries in which even currently with the existing method, we can say, okay, Within statistical approximation uh, potential of these methods, we are fairly sure that there is no problem of severe food insecurity. So, if this is possible in some countries, why not everywhere? So, from the purely technical point of view, we should be able to set practical uh, targets for the indicators that would be be time or opportunity for celebration. So the differences that we see is more that across population, or if we focus within population across different social groups, there are inequalities that can be tackled and should be addressed. So it's good. Attention to the food system and transforming the food system, learning from what's going on and what has happened as opportunities. You know, I hate the term resilience. I think that every time social activities are involved, we should more speak of transformation. Learning from the past means that you don't go back to whatever the situation was before the shock, because it would mean that you have learned nothing from the shock itself. But I would also to say it's not that you can fix the food value chain and all the problems of inequality are solved. Food security is just one manifestation of inequalities. 
Carla, we're coming to the end of our recording now. Is there anything else you'd like to add to our conversation to share with our audience? I only want to express my gratitude for having had an opportunity to express also sometimes the frustration that we have in doing something that we know is difficult, is complex, and it's difficult to convey, to communicate, but that I still believe it's very useful. And so I hope that we will be able to continue to keep the attention on food insecurity. And as I said, as a one manifestation of more fundamental problem that uh, the, the global community, the global society should be addressing in the future. So thank you for the opportunity. Carlo Caffiero and Andy Zeppa, thanks so much for joining us for today's episode. Thank you so much. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you, Caitlin. Thank you, Carly. That's it for today's episode of Reset the Table. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Food. Until next time.